you turn with me to the book of Luke, first chapter. We will be in verses 57 through 80 this morning. Now the time was fulfilled for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had magnified his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zechariah after the name of his father. But his mother answered and said, No, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. And they were making signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they all marveled. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak, blessing God. And fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard these things put them in their heart, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was indeed with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which, with which, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to make ready his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to direct our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the desolate regions until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And thus far is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I'll pray for our time this morning. Father, as we gather here today, we come before your presence with reverence and gratitude. We acknowledge that this moment is not a mere coincidence, but a divine appointment orchestrated by your wisdom and grace. Lord, we seek your guidance and light as we dive into your word this morning. We recognize that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And today, as we open the pages of Scripture, we humbly ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to receive its truths. Grant us wisdom to comprehend your message, and may your spirit bring clarity to our minds and hearts, transforming us as we learn and reflect. May the words spoken today be in alignment with your will and edify the souls gathered here. We commit this time to you, Father and ask for your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So here we are in the continuation of the greatest story ever told. To set the stage for you for today's text, we began a few weeks ago walking through the Gospel of Luke. Remember, this Gospel is a letter that Luke wrote to Theopolis. And Luke begins with the birth stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. Pastor Chris has been showing us how Luke compares and contrasts these two men, and we will continue to see some of those, uh, those this morning as we dig into this remarkable section. This morning, we find ourselves nine months from where Luke began, the first fulfillment of two supernatural births. You'll remember that the, that the angel Gabriel came to the priest, Zechariah, and to his bitter disbelief, told him that his wife Elizabeth would give birth to a son. Luke previously told us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were advanced in years and were well past childbearing years. But Zechariah doubted. He questioned the angel, and, he, and because of his unbelief, he would not be able to speak again until his son was born. Well, fast-forwarding nine months, we now come to today's text. Today is the day where the people will finally see God's promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth fulfilled. Remember, roughly 400 years have passed since God last spoke through his prophet Malachi. You have to imagine the speculation about what this would mean for God's covenant people and what he was doing. Would they attribute, attribute this child to the prophecies spoken in Isaiah and Malachi about a messenger coming to prepare a way. Well, let's dig deeper into our text and the events surrounding John's birth. We'll start with verse 57, and I'll read, read these again, 57 through 58. Now the time was fulfilled for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had magnified his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. The very first thing I want you to see is that God fulfilled his promise to Zechariah. The advanced and barren woman gave birth to a child, and not only a child, but a son, just as Gabriel had promised. Let's take in the amazement that they must have felt. This couple had been childless for decades. On this side of the cross and the completion of the writing of God's word, we get to see that God does fulfill his promises. We get to sit back with wonder at the way in which he kept those promises. In a time when the people were no doubt questioning if God would ever deliver them, God had not forgotten. Roughly 20 generations would have been looking for the promised Messiah since God last spoke. And here the herald of that Messiah has been born. And we know that God is faithful from generation to generation. Later on in Luke, he says, And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. And we see that here, that God always keeps his promises. He kept his promises to Israel. He kept his promises to Zechariah. And he will keep his promises to me and you, because he is faithful from generation to generation. When God caused Elizabeth to conceive in an old age, we see that God took away her disgrace among men, which we read about in verse 25. God had removed her shame of barrenness. Do you see the foreshadowing? God was going to remove much more shame than barrenness. God, to wake, God takes away our reproach 
and our greatest shame, which is our sin. And God promised that due to the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, we can have that shame and that reproach removed. And this is one of his greatest promises he has kept. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that when you confess your sins and turn from your sin, that there is no longer guilt or cause for guilt? Do you rest in the fact that when you confessed that sin from your distant past and have since turned from that sin, that you have received mercy? As ones who have received forgiveness for our sins, we should not be navel-gazers, someone who always has their head down looking at themselves in pity. Woe is me. I'm so horrible. That is not trusting God for the promise to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Imagine the relief that Elizabeth received when the reproach was removed from her and the comfort that she received. This lifelong barrenness is now gone. This is what we have, what we have in Christ, brothers and sisters. We have, this, we have this comfort and more, and for eternity. So do not wallow in your past, but look forward through the sanctification that we have received. And notice what happens when God's word comes to pass. It caused great rejoicing among her friends and family. God promised she would be barren no longer. God promised she would have a son. And the people saw the mercy of the Lord, and they rejoiced with her. Friends, this should be our disposition of every one of us when the Lord is merciful to his people. We rejoice when a dead soul passes from darkness to light because God is merciful. We rejoice when a man and a woman are made one through holy matrimony, because God is merciful. We rejoice when prayer is answered for healing. We rejoice when surgeries are successful. We rejoice when travel safety is granted. We rejoice because God is merciful. And yes, we rejoice every month when babies are born here, just as was described. We see rejoicing for two things, because God fulfilled his promise to Zechariah that his son had been born, and because Elizabeth gave birth to a child, something to, something to them that had been previously an impossibility. Rejoicing is a command from the Lord, isn't it? The Bible is full of commands to rejoice. Just a couple here, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And Isaiah 65, 18, but be joyful and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for joy. Over and over again in the New Testament, the idea of joy is communicated as an imperative, which if you'll remember kids who are learning Latin, is related to emperor, which means to command. It is an obligation it is our Christian duty, our moral obligation to be joyful. This means that when the failure of a Christian to be joy this means that a failure of a Christian to be joyful is a sin, and that a lack of joy is a manifestation of the flesh. Listen to what J.C. Rowell said about this passage. Quote, How much more happiness would there be in this evil world if conduct like that of Elizabeth's relations was more common? Sympathy in one another's joys and sorrows costs little, 
and yet is a grace of most mighty power. Like the oil on the wheels of some large engine, it may seem a trifling and unimportant thing, yet in reality it has an immense influence on the comfort and well-working of the whole machine of society. A kind word of congratulation or consolation is seldom forgotten. The heart that is warmed by good tidings or chilled by affliction is uniquely susceptible, and sympathy to such a heart is often more precious than gold. The servant of Christ will do well to remember this grace. End quote. Brothers and sisters, let's be known as a church body who rejoices well with one another. Can I encourage you to go beyond the hands-up emoji as your only response of sharing in the joy of a brother and sister? I know it's easy to respond quickly to a praise or pr- uh, prayer or praise in Mattermost by pressing that emoji icon and then moving on. But don't let that be our only response. When was the last time you encouraged another or audibly rejoiced in the joy of another? I would encourage you to take a moment to send that brother or sister a little note of encouragement for the sake of their souls and ours. It is good for us to take a few moments to stop and dwell on the mercy of the Lord and remember his kind provisions in every situation. And children, do you rejoice in the gifts and blessings that your siblings receive? Or is the first thought in your mind to want to make sure that you are equal? Instead of wishing you had something that your sibling has, which is a sin and is called covetousness, let the normal reaction that you have be rejoicing in, the, in your sibling's good fortune. So much less bickering and fighting will occur when we rejoice, because it will be impossible to truly rejoice in something while at the same time we have jealousy in our hearts. And one other thing to note before we move on, and that is the stark contrast between the birth of John the Baptist and that of our Savior Jesus Christ. This offers profound insights into the essence of their respective missions and God's divine plan. John's birth was marked by the excitement and recognition of his community, foreshadowing his role as the herald of Christ. In contrast, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, unfolded quietly, nestled in a humble manger in Bethlehem, known only to a few shepherds and heavenly hosts. The apparent lack of fanfare underscores the profound humility of Jesus' incarnation, highlighting that this mission transcended worldly recognition. Jesus came not as a triumphant ruler, but as the suffering servant, bringing salvation to humanity through his sacrificial love and divine grace. The contrasting circumstances of their births should remind us that God's ways often defy human expectations. Well, continuing on, We see that John was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law, and a naming ceremony occurs. Verse 59 says, And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zechariah, after the name of his father. But his mother answered and said, No, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. And they were making signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. It seems like those who were in charge of this ceremony were going to take it upon themselves to name the boy Zechariah. One would think you should consult the parents before assuming, but maybe because Zechariah couldn't talk, 
They felt confident in naming him after his father. In any case, there's an interesting side thought here with the fact that they wanted to name him after his father. It was not customary to name a son after the father. And we see this by example in scripture where genealogies often list Abraham, the father of Isaac, or Jacob, the father of Joseph. Name them after a relative, yes, that was common, but name them after their father, that was not. It's an interesting thought experiment to imagine why they wanted to name him Zechariah. Maybe it was because the name Zechariah had a beautiful meaning. Yahweh remembers. And maybe they wanted to attribute this name to that event. Or maybe with the events that occurred, the vision in the temple, the barren woman giving birth, etc., that it fostered the desire that the boy be named after his now famous father. Well, it doesn't really matter, though, what the friends desired to name him, or even what Elizabeth and Zechariah had dreamt about naming their sons when they were early on in their marriage. The Lord had named John, and the only thing Elizabeth and Zechariah had to do was obey. See, God's plans cannot be thwarted, and this should be salve to our weary souls. We know that God is for us, Psalm 118.6. And we know that God will sustain us, Psalm 55.22. And we know that God will do good for us, Psalm 145.9. Then we know that no plan of the enemy will ultimately succeed. This is like the opposite bookend to God keeping his promises, is that God's plans will succeed. God keeps his promises, God's plans will succeed. His plans cannot and will not be frustrated. Listen to God speak about his plans in Isaiah. He says, Remember this and be assured. Cause it to return to your heart, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying, My counsel will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of, the man of my counsel from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have formed it, surely I will do it. The truth is that God has a plan. He's writing a story as we are fond of saying, and this is set in stone for each and every one of us. From the foundations of the world, God's plan will absolutely and definitively come to pass. In fact, his plans are designed for a specific time and season, and nothing will derail that. Nothing can happen before God ordains it and without his allowance. And this may sound cruel and restrictive to our finite individualistic minds, but when you understand and believe this fact, Nothing should trouble our minds again. I used this recently when we had our first St. Boniface Academy assembly on the first day of school because I love it so much, I told the kids. But Doug Wilson said something a few years back that has stuck with me as I raised my own children, as most recently I sent Ada across the country for college. He said that God has hand-stitched our kids in the world so that they would be assigned to the year 2040. We are here to equip them for their fights. And then he said, we are not to be afraid for them or sad for them. Meaning we look at the world that we live in today 
and how quickly it slipped in the past 60 or 70 years, and think, what will it be in another 10 or 20 years? I can't imagine the life that my children will have to live. We do not have to be worried for them. We do not have to worry how they will make it. God is preparing them for that time. If we are obeying God ourselves and raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and even if, God forbid, we do not do that, in spite of ourselves, God still controls the story and writes the pages. And God is using history as an instrument to glorify himself. God is crafting everything. And this is the confidence that we ought to be living in and instilling in our children, that we do not need to be afraid for their future and how they will manage, because God is preparing them for those years. And God had a plan to fulfill, to fulfill in John, and his plans would not be thwarted. He would not be named Zechariah. Despite Elizabeth being barren, despite Zechariah's unbelief, and despite these friends' attempts to name him Zechariah, God's plan was to be fulfilled in that moment. And not only was God's plan to be fulfilled, but Zechariah's punishment was to be lifted at his obedience. If we look at verse 63, And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John, and they all marveled. After the confusion and bewilderment about naming the baby John, as Elizabeth had mentioned, Zechariah puts an end to the disagreement by matter-of-factly writing, His name is John. In this moment, we see a swift reward to Zechariah's obedience. He relinquished John to God's service. Zechariah had nine months to think about the decision he made in that split second to doubt the messenger of God. His faithlessness in that moment led to nine months of faith building, I'm sure. Notice he does not say his name shall be John. Instead, there's a change of tense between verse 60 and 63 that is a significant one. John had realized that God himself named the child from the time of the angel's announcement. And God reserved the right for himself because God was going to relate to this child and through this child in an extraordinary way. Chris alluded to this a few weeks ago, but here again we see the significance in John's name. John means Jehovah is or has been gracious. Indeed, this is true. But have you ever thought about John's name alongside John's message? John's message, if rightly understood, was a hard message, one of repentance. He was not seeker-sensitive, nor did he tickle the ears of his hearers so that he would, not, so that he would have their favor. No, he called some of them brood of vipers. According to all of Scripture, the warning of approaching judgment and doom, unless true conversion takes place, is a divinely select means of urging men to turn away from their darkness and their sins, and to serve the Lord, and therefore to enter into his kingdom of light. Not to spoil the story for you, but John wasn't winsome with his words, and he was beheaded for, for confronting sin. And this is why we cannot only stand in front of the abortion mill with a sign that says Jesus loves you, or choose to overlook the offense of the LGBTQ agenda profaning God's design and his covenant sign with Noah. We have got to speak against the issues of our day with clear and concise language, reproving them and their actions. And we can see scripture backs this up. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, said, 
I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have godly sorrow, so that you might not suffer loss and anything through us. And Jesus himself, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Paul's message is clear in Romans chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And yet, at the same time, the wrath of God is revealed to those who do not believe. So John's name was indeed, indeed suitable. For through him and his stern message, many of the sons of Israel would be turned to the Lord their God and would experience that, indeed, Jehovah is gracious, just as verse 16 promised would happen. Well, let's look at what happens when Zechariah obeyed, picking up at verse 64. And at once his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak, blessing God. And fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard these things put them in their heart, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was indeed with him. I mentioned this a moment ago, but we see in, in accordance with Gabriel's promise that Zechariah immediately regains his speech. We see that Zechariah is no longer faithless, and we see the swiftness in which God acted to remove the punishment and reward obedience. And this is the tender-hearted God that we serve, isn't it? One who does all things according to his good pleasure to draw us and to sanctify us. Amen. Do you believe this about God, that he is kind and merciful to those who run to him? Or do you think he enjoys punishing his children? If you're reading along in the Bible reading plan, we just read through the story of Jonah this past week. And we see a perfect example of God's compassion on his people both to the city of Nineveh as well as Jonah. Listen to what God said about his compassion in the last two verses of this book. He said, then, the word says, Then Yahweh said, You had pity on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came to be overnight and perished overnight. So should I not have pity on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their left hand and their right hand, as well as many animals? God told Jonah that he had compassion and cared for those 120,000 people who were spiritually blind and morally confused. He relented of the coming destruction they deserved. He had compassion for them, a people who are made in his image, who have dignity, value, and worth. In addition to the repeated compassion of God towards his people, that we see all throughout the Old Testament, we see compassion from Christ in the New Testament. Christ had compassion on the crowd and caused him to heal their sick. It caused him to feed them. It caused him to comfort them and embrace them and kiss them. So I urge you, brothers, to follow Zechariah's example here so that if you'll allow me, we give God the opportunity, opportunity to demonstrate his compassion to his children. We often will pray a prayer of confession during our pastoral prayers because we truly believe that God will not bless our worship when we hold on to our sins and our pride. And we will often pray a prayer of pardon to remind us of the forgiveness that is immediately and freely given 
when we do confess. Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And this is exactly what he did for Zechariah in his moment of obedience. He demonstrated compassion and restored the tongue that was bound. And this caused Zechariah to immediately bless God with his lips. We see that by God's grace, this man seems to have understood the purpose for which he had been chastened. And not only did Zechariah praise God, but Luke tells us that fear and discussion came over all who heard of these events. Indeed, many strange and wonderful events had taken place. Zechariah's vision in the temple and his inability to address the people after his service. Mary's three-month visit to Elizabeth. You have to imagine there were stories shared about that joy um, that was experienced in the womb. The birth of a child to parents who were well advanced in years, let alone who were barren. The prediction that a boy was going to be born that came true. The precarious naming of John when Zechariah was still mute and John wasn't a family name. And the return of Zechariah's voice. And then the enthusiastic manner in which he praised God. It's not hard to imagine that after 400 years of silence from God, the, that excitement and fear were growing. And in fact, we see that in verse 66, that they did not take these things lightly. They were deeply moved and took their meaning to heart. They had high hopes for the future, a future role for this child. And Luke confirms they are right in such wonder. For God's hand was indeed with this little boy. And the only right response to the realization that God was in their midst was the fear that they felt and the blessings that they spoke. Well, let's look next at the blessing that Zechariah spoke. And just to let you know, Chris did ask me a while ago if I thought we needed to split these uh, sections into two sermons, to which I said, nah, I got this. Well, it turns out he was right, and we probably could have had split this into its own sermon but the good news is, even as, as we fly over 30,000 feet uh, over this prophecy, as we continue through the life of Christ and John through the weeks to come, we will dig deeper into the things that are prophesied here. But just as we studied last week, Zechariah is said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 67, um, just as Elizabeth had a few months earlier. These prophetic words that Zechariah proclaimed which may have been in the form of a song, are called the Benedictus, which is Latin, and that, means, and that word means blessed, which is the, word, uh, the first word in the Vulgate with which this praise begins. One simple way to divide this prophecy is in two parts, one each, one sentence long. In the first part, we have Zechariah praising God for having provided salvation for his people, a fulfillment of prophecy and his holy covenant. And in the second part, he summarizes his child's mission as the way preparer for the Messiah. Well, if we look first at the section about Christ, there are three things to note that are being prophesied here. Zechariah speaks about Christ accomplishing redemption. He speaks about God's mercy. And lastly, our fearless servitude because of God's merciful redemption. Verse 68 through 71 Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old, 
salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. We see the purpose for which Christ came, and that's for the redemption of his people, specifically that God would do this through Christ. There's lots of underlying themes here, but I'll just hit a couple quickly, starting with the picture of the horn. The horn here can be linked to one who is honorable. Psalm 119, or sorry, 112 uh, verse 9 says, his horn is exalted in honor. The horn can be linked to our plentiful provider. If you think about the horn of plenty, which is an ancient symbol of boundless abundance. Horns are also used as a weapon for defense and vengeance, and they are a picture of strength and power. Listen to Deuteronomy 33:17, how it pictures an ox with horns that are able to defeat the enemies by pushing them at will. It says, As the firstborn of his ox, splendor is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. With them he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth, and those are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and those are the thousands of Manasseh. Helmets are now adorned with horns to symbolize power, and the house of David is often symbolized with horns as the delivering nation. So we see the portrayal here of a great power and strength who will deliver God's people from their enemies. He will accomplish redemption for his people. Another is that he visited his people. The God of the universe, the one who spoke existence all there is, took on the form of a man and visited his people. This idea of God visiting has such a rich history in the Old Testament for the people of Israel who looked forward to those moments when God would visit his people. If you want to dig deeper into this, I recommend you look up R.C. Sproul's message on this passage. He links the Greek word here, episcope, to the noun form meaning to bishop. A bishop is one who sees his people and who takes the time to visit them, particularly in their time of need. It's a good sermon. You can find it on YouTube. I suggest you listen to it. The truth that we can rest in today is that not only did God come in the form of a man, but he now dwells with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Another truth that should lift our weary souls. And this horn, this visiting, this deliverance, it should remind us of God's deliverance of his people when the Israelites were under the oppression of the Egyptians for 400 years. God himself, through Moses, delivered the Israelites from their enemies and those who hated them. Of course, we know that Moses was only a servant who pointed to something which would come after him, someone better than him. He was a steward of another's house, namely Christ's house, as Hebrews 6 describes. Jesus is the better deliverer because he didn't deliver just men from people's oppression, but he delivered men from sin and death. And did you notice that it was 400 years of the Egyptian captivity before deliverance? And here it's been 400 years since God last spoke. And the event breaking this silence is another better deliverance. God truly does write the best stories. Next, we see the ancient prophets actually predicted the coming of the offspring of David, the one who would destroy all his enemies and bring salvation to his people. Collectively, these prophets predicted bits and pieces of this one who would come to deliver. Some of these prophets included Moses, David, 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and among others. God himself was the speaker, yet these prophets were his mouthpiece that Zechariah mentions. And of course, we see what we are saved from, which is further meant by redemption here. Repeatedly in Scripture, we see Jesus Christ as the one who conquers all. Now, sometimes the word all can be used as hyperbole, but in this instance, this instance, all really does mean all. Satan, his allies, sin, death, the grave, hell, and all the hosts of evil, both in the physical sense and in the spiritual sense. Brothers and sisters, if the one who came to accomplish salvation for his people saved us from all, then who or what do we have to fear? Nothing. If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen to these beautiful words from Revelation 17. There will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is the Lord of hosts, or because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called and the elect and faithful. Well, the prophecy continues with the heart behind His coming. And Zechariah, uh, Zechariah continues in verse 72 to show mercy toward his fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which, with which he swore to Abraham, our, fathers, our father. Christ came because he is a merciful God, and Christ came because God is a covenant keeper. This parallels what Mary spoke of when she prophesied and said, He has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, Abraham, and to his seed forever. The concept of God's mercy paints a portrait of God that is both profound and comforting. It reveals to us a God who is inherently loyal, not only to himself, but also to his people. This loyalty is a testament to his unwavering commitment to who God is and to the well-being of those who look to him for that salvation, that mercy and salvation. From his mercy, we experience his loyalty and unwavering faithfulness. It's a faithfulness that transcends human understanding. God's faithfulness doesn't depend on our actions. Rather, it is a steadfast anchor in the tumultuous sea of life. He remains a constant presence, ready to extend his grace and love, regardless of our shortcomings. In addition, the remembrance of his holy covenant serves as a powerful symbol of God's promise-keeping nature. His divine promises, like the covenant, are sacred and unbreakable. When God makes a commitment, it is an it, it's an assurance that he cannot fail to fulfill it. His promise-keeping isn't merely a virtue. It's an intrinsic aspect of his divine character. In Christ, as I've already mentioned, is yet another example of God's promise being kept. His mercy isn't just a concept. It is a reality that offers hope and reassurance to those who seek his presence for their lives. Finally, from the last part of this prophecy about Christ, we see the outcome of this redemption by mercy. Verse 74 says, To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is the gospel, church. The God of Israel brought about redemption for us, his people, 
with this purpose, namely that we, having now been rescued from the hand of our enemies, should serve him with, without fear and in holiness and righteousness in his presence and enduring forever. God rescues his people through the Messiah from the hands of these enemies. We no longer have to live in fear because as we've already discussed, if God is for us, then who can be against us? These verses often remind us that faith in God can deliver us from the grip of fear. Fear often holds us back, preventing us from realizing our true potential and purpose in Christ. It can be paralyzing, limiting us in countless ways. However, the message here is clear. Through this redemption and faith, we can break free from those chains of fear. It's an invitation to trust in the one who can guide and deliver us through all of life's challenges. Well, let's look lastly at what is said about John in this prophecy. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to make ready his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercies of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to direct our feet into the way of peace. John's ministry will be twofold, twofold, and we'll see that play out in the weeks to come. First, John will be used to speak of sin and forgiveness. He will call his hearers to know salvation through the forgiveness of their, uh, through the forgiveness of their sins. And second, he will point them to the one who would make it all a reality. He would point them to the one who can really bring them from darkness into the light. The one they have been waiting for to rescue them, to redeem them, to deliver them and give them hope. John's role as a precursor aligns with the depictions found in the other Gospels, but Luke stands out as the one as the most explicit in linking this role to the core themes of John's message, and that's salvation, the remission of sins, and the call for the baptism of repentance. In the grand tapestry of God's divine plan, the word mercy shines as a common thread, weaving together the tasks of both John and Christ. It is through God's boundless mercy that we witness the manifestation of their missions, reflecting, gracious, reflecting the gracious nature of our Creator. This divine mercy isn't merely an abstract concept. It's a force that propels God's regal Messiah into the midst of humanity, where he takes on the role of a guiding light. Again, looking at this mercy, it is one that drives the missions of both John and Christ. John's task is a testament to God's mercy in preparing the hearts of his people, guiding them toward repentance and paving the way for the arrival. Likewise, Christ's mission manifests divine mercy in the most amazing way. His visitation to humanity is a demonstration of God's mercy in action. He serves as the guiding heavenly light, lighting the path towards God's way of peace. Christ's teaching, healings, and ultimately his sacrifice on the cross exemplify the boundless love and compassion of our God Almighty, 
offering salvation and reconciliation to all who seek him. If you are outside of Christ, if you have not turned in repentance and faith towards God and you're here today, then everything I've spoken about today concerning about God's mercy and Christ's work in the life of the believer is not about you. But there is wonderful news and that it is for you if you turn toward him. If God Almighty, the maker of everyone and everything, is revealing himself to you and drawing you to him with a desire to be in this light, then the call is simple, to repent and believe. Once that happens in an unbeliever's life, when your dead heart is turned to a heart of flesh, then you will obtain this mercy that's so so beautifully illustrated in today's texts. John's message was simple then, and it's simple now. How will you respond to the gospel message you heard today? In Luke's conclusion on this section of the letter, he describes that John continued to grow like any normal child would grow, out of the spotlight, becoming stronger in spirit, in desolate areas alone with God, and awaiting for the day when his work would commence in Israel. This last verse parallels Luke's words that we'll get to in a few weeks, speaking of Christ. Now, the verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, sorry, verse 40. Now the child continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The groundwork has now been completed. The introduction of the main character has been teed up. The way has been prepared, and as the curtain closes on this first chapter, everybody is left with much anticipation of the one they've all been waiting for. Surely someone reading this for the first time cannot but let their hearts be filled with hope and eager expectation. The stage has been set, the players introduced, and the plot established. We are on the cusp of a divine revelation, a meeting with the one who brings ultimate rejoice and fulfillment. May our anticipation be met with the never-ending grace and love of our Savior as we journey onward into the unfolding chapters of Luke's gospel and Christ's birth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word that we are able to open and we are able to meditate on. We thank you for the birth of John, who has shown us that you are the promise keeper, the one who, when you set your mind towards something, when you say you will do something, when you cut a covenant with your people, that you will not fail your people. Father, thank you for Christ and the work that he has done on our behalf to bring redemption to a people that so greatly needed it. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, but you have made us alive. We are grateful for that. Thank you for that continual reminder. I pray that as we continue to study your word, that we would not take these words lightly, take them for granted because we continue to hear them week after week, but that each week they would be new to us, that your words would be uh, the story of Christ, the birth story of Christ would be new to us, and Lord, that we would see your faithfulness towards your people. Father, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.